Our reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. It's a familiar story, and it's on page 12 in the Bibles. Now, the whole world had one language and common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Sinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that men were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city and that's why it's called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the world and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes' time. But first of all, I want us to watch a very, very short advert. It's from 1970, and it is introducing a brand new technology. How little did we know at the time? An early advert for email. Um, So why a sermon on technology? It seems a strange thing to preach on. Well, as part of my preparation for this series, I read uh, this encyclical, this Pope's letter. It's called Laudato Si, which is Latin and just means praise to you. The Pope likes to give, they like to give their encyclicals pompous names. But it's about the environment. The subtitle is Our Care, On on Care for Our Common Home. And actually, I'd really recommend, if if you're at all interested, do read it. It's free. It's available at laudatosi.org. And in chapter three of his letter... He says this under the chapter, The Human Roots of the Ecological Crisis. It would hardly be helpful to describe symptoms without acknowledging the human origins of the ecological crisis. A certain way of understanding human life and activity has gone awry to the serious detriment of the world around us. Should we not pause and consider this? At this stage, I propose that we focus on the dominant technocratic paradigm and the place of human beings and of human action in the world. And he then goes on to talk about technology and his perspective on technology and how it has contributed to where we find ourselves today. And it is a fantastic piece of theological writing. If you work in a technological industry, you work with technology, read it. It'll get you thinking. Ben Niblett last week from Tear Fund put it rather simpler than that. In the middle of his sermon, these words jumped out at me. We didn't go looking for this, that was the climate crisis, but we we didn't intend it, but it's our generation's problem and we have to deal with it. We've been working our way through a series of topics and it struck me that many of the ones we've been dealing with, they've come about because of technical innovation, technical innovations that were good and that have been helpful and that have fed hundreds of people but have had unintended consequences. Climate change, when Dave Gregory presented the facts about global warming to us, cars have been a fantastic liberating technology. Power stations have given us electric light all over the world. But as an unintended consequence of burning fossil fuels, we have heated up 
our atmosphere. And we now need to find ways to deal with it. Soil, when Andy preached on soil degradation, uh, geophosphates have enabled us to farm on massive scales. They're also slowly killing the soil that we depend on. Remember DDTs from a few years ago? They got banned because of the damage they were causing. There's a similar debate going on about geophosphates in the soil at the moment. Animals, we talked about the destruction of habitat. Um, Machines that can clear acres and acres and acres of forest in just a day. We've invented these machines. If we had to do it by axe, there'd be a lot more rainforest left. But we're able to do things on such an industrial scale. And none of these things, the technologies in themselves, are not bad, but the consequences of using them have only begun to come to light. So I began to look through the Bible looking for technologies in the Bible. And in the reading we just had in Genesis 11, many scholars talk about this as only being possible, the Tower of Babel, because of a new technology. The invention of bricks. Baking hard bricks. Baking them so hard that you could then make them uniformly and stack them together and go higher than you've ever been able to build before. Do you see that line there? Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Remember, this is kind of very, very early uh, mythical part of the Bible. It's 1 to 11. It's it's mythic language. But this is a story that's in, in, um, in Israelite culture of a time when a new technology enabled them to build to the sky so that we may make a name for ourselves. Behind the Tower of Babel is a new technology. So how about um, David and Goliath? You know that story? We read in 2 Samuel, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. So all of Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plough points, mattocks, axes and sickles sharpened. The Philistines were partly scary because they had iron. This, is, this dates from the very beginning of the Iron Age. The Philistines had a new technology that enabled them to produce sharper, harder swords. And they were feared by all around them because of this new technology. And the Israelites didn't have it. So they had to go to the, They obviously were able to buy some tools, but they had to go back to the Philistines to have them worked on and sharpened. Which puts David and Goliath in a whole new light, doesn't it? Because it's the old technology defeating the new. It's technical innovation in conflict. And actually, scholars believe that part of the reason... I mean, King David was a fantastic king for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons King David was such a big king on the Israelite scene is because he appropriated that iron technology into Israel. When they defeated the Israelites, uh, the, the Philistines... They took that technology back into Israel. And all of a sudden, the Israelites have got iron. And they become a nation to be feared. One final one from in the Bible. This from 2 Chronicles. Jerusalem, he, this is King Uzziah, the king of Judah, made devices invented for use on the towers and on the corner defences so that his soldiers could shoot arrows and hurl large stones from the walls. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. The invention of the catapult. The invention of the catapult, King Uzziah is famous for it. You see it in, in, in paintings on walls and carvings. The invention of the slingshot catapult. That was a new invention at the time, a new technology. Interestingly, technologies for war are the ones that are recorded. So actually, all the way through the Bible, we see this interaction. It's the story of human and their interactions with God. But it's also their interactions with these new technologies as they evolve and appear.
So what do we mean by technology? Well, this is the definition that popped up on my Apple Mac when I typed it into the spotlight search bar. It came up and said, an application of scientific knowledge for practical purposes, especially in industry. A little dull, perhaps. But technology, we might think of this. Money, the first alphabet, musical notation, swords, bridges, toilet paper, rechargeable batteries, piano, morphine, antibiotics, email, polyester, and so the list goes on. And I am really grateful for many of the things on that list. Are you not? Antibiotics have been a phenomenal invention. One that we're going to have to find new adaptions for because we're getting used to them and that we're adapting to them. Bugs are adapting to them. But these are technologies, and I am really, really grateful for so many of them. And it is part of our creativity, our being made in the image of God, is the fact that we have this ability to create and invent and discover new technologies and new things. And I have to say, when I first started preparing for this sermon, I was thinking, well, technology is just a tool, isn't it? It's neutral. It's just an invention. It it can be used for good or it can be used for evil. But actually, as I read a lot of sociologists and I read books on this over the last fortnight, most of them suggest that actually technology isn't as neutral as we think it is. Because it has some intrinsic arguments within it. It has some built-in arguments. It rarely stops to ask the question, should we? It's there to be invented. We've made this discovery. The question, should we produce this, is rarely... It's debated, but it has this internal momentum. And what we should, because we can. And actually, if we don't, then someone else will. I've heard that argument come up on the news. Well, if we don't do it, someone else will. So we need to be the first ones to do it. It has this intrinsic kind of quality and forward momentum to it. Is it quite as neutral as we think it is. I'll give you an example. Winston Churchill in 1941 said this, we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. Interesting quote. Who uses a sat-nav in their car? Yeah, most of us. I wouldn't get get anywhere these days without a sat-nav. Neuroscientists now now have learned a, a phenomenon in the brain called neuroplasticity. It continues into all of your life. Basically, as you continue to do something, you develop new pathways in your brain and they become reinforced and the old ones drift away. They've discovered that the more you rely on a sat-nav to get you around, the worse you are at navigating without one. Because the pathways you used to do to remember directions are being eroded because you're not using them. Because you're reliant on this little box to get you where you need to go. I remember going to a meeting in East London one time and I just followed the sat-nav and somebody asked me where I was when I got there. I haven't got a clue. I'm somewhere in London. We invent the tools and then the tools shape us. Literally, our brains are being reshaped by the tools we use through this phenomenon of neuroplasticity. And inherent to this idea of technology is that progress is is better, faster, stronger. One of my guilty pleasures on a Sunday evening after I finish the afternoon service is to go home and open a cold beer from the fridge and watch Top Gear and chuckle at the general stupidity. A few weeks ago, they did this, where they raced the latest McLaren F1 against an aeroplane. Quite why you'd do that, an F35, but it was quite entertaining TV. This, F, this um, McLaren F1 will, will just drives a shade under 300 miles an hour. Why? 
I mean, it's great. You can. It's, I'm, I'm really impressed they can do it. But where is there any practical use for a 300 mile per hour car? On the school run? It has one seat. Where am I going to put the kids? Actually, um, Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig is a great book. Uh, I thoroughly recommend reading it in one of the chapters. This is an entire chapter in the book. He says this. Things that are faster than they used to be. Mail, cars, Olympic sprinters, news, processing power, photographs, scenes in films, financial transactions, journeys, world population growth, deforestation of the Amazon rainforest, navigation, technological progress, relationships, political events, and the thoughts in your head. Living well in a world full of technology in an anxious society where we're shaped by the technology around us. And you know, technology isn't a linear progression. It moves in leaps. And there have been technological inventions that have jumped us forward the wheel. You know, inventions that have leapt us forward in, in great strides. And a, a famous one is obviously the printing press. 500 or so years ago, the invention of the printing press. Previously to that, ideas had to be word of mouth. You might, or letters, and you'd send them out and people, you know, very few handwritten letters. Information could spread very slowly. The printing press, all of a sudden, you can mass produce ideas and you can bundle them off and you can send them. And people could read them and engage with them. A brand new technology that arguably enabled the Reformation. The Reformation of the church could not have happened without the ability to disseminate their ideas on that scale due to the recent invention of the printing press. The two went hand in hand. They would not have happened without each other. And it completely reshaped, and it's one of the things that reshaped the church dramatically, shaped by an invention in technology. We are living through a similar era right now. We are living through an era that is radical, as radical in change as the invention of the printing press, if not more so. And when I'm preaching on an Old Testament passage, I now always look for a sermon by a a, a rabbi at a progressive synagogue in New York City because I can get his sermons online and I can search them. And I really like what he says on the Old Testament. That's enabled by the internet. The dissemination of ideas is now instant. You know, the information that you have in your pocket is staggering. We don't yet know what the effects of all this change will be, but we are living through it. And it's exciting and it's scary in equal measure. Interestingly, as I was preparing this talk, uh, Tuesday was Safer Internet Day. And Amherst sent out a whole lot of stuff about keeping our kids safe online. The internet has enabled so many things. It has been so great, but it has a dark side, doesn't it? There is a dark underside to the internet, the prevalence and availability of, of, of what is blatantly hardcore pornography, of extremist ideas. The sort of stuff that you couldn't get in this country when I was a teenage boy and wanted to try to look in the top shelf magazines. You know what I mean? And my children, I'm having to work out how to navigate this brave new world with my children who have their phones, have their devices, exposed to ideas that I never had. What will it do to shape our relationships? What will it do to shape what we think about sex? Ideas. Um, I thoroughly recommend this website, humanetech.com. Humane Tech was a group of there's the, uh, Google, the head of ethics at Google, set it up, along with the guy who invented the like button for Facebook. Um, he's got a lot to answer for, that guy. But actually, they're saying, we need to think about this technology. We invented it to be so addictive 
so, so addictive and we were so good at it that now we're worried about what we created. Our invention has got ahead of us. And actually, how do we engage and use this stuff sensibly? Because it's a great tool. And Facebook has enabled some wonderful things in communication and relationships. But how do we use it sensibly? And they've bro broken off. They've quit their various jobs and set up the Center for Humane Tech. And it's some fascinating videos and insights onto how you use modern technology well. And just in case you think this is an entirely modern problem, this is Samuel Pepys' diary from the 13th of May, 1665. And it's quite hard to read because it's old English, but I will try. Oh, I should set the context. He's just bought himself his first pocket watch. His first pocket watch cost £15. That was a year's wages. And it only had an hour hand. No minute hand. But Lord, to see how much my old folly and childishness hangs upon me, still that I cannot forbear carrying my watch in my hand in the coach all this afternoon, and seeing what o'clock it is one hundred times, and am apt to think with myself, how could I be so long without one? Though I remember since, I had one and found it a trouble, and resolved to carry one no more about me while I lived." Anyone do that with their mobile phone? <laughs> Reaching in their pocket, taking it out a hundred times an hour. It appears that Samuel Pepys did the same thing with his pocket watch when he first had it. I came across this quote from C.S. Lewis, which I love. Progress, progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be. If you've taken a wrong turning, then to go forwards does not get you any nearer. Progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turning, then to go forwards does not get you any nearer. Um, I'm not a Luddite. I promise I have a technology degree, for goodness sake. Uh, my first job was for a technology company. I worked for a company called Dolby Laboratories. We used to sell those boxes down on the bottom left-hand corner. Um, to TV, TV stations... Uh, those, those boxes are totally obsolete now because your phone is more powerful than the stuff they contain and they can be done in computers. But that was my first job. And I remember uh, I was away at a conference. Uh, um, it was a consumer electronics show, no, a broadcast electronics show in Amsterdam with them. And my direct, the director of the department, Tony, was there. And we were talking over, over lunch one evening. And he discovered I was a Christian and was talking a little bit about my faith. And he said, you know what? I put my faith in technology. Technology is going to be the thing that's going to save us. Technology will give us eternal life. And I remember that quote. Thinking, wow, does he really believe that? <laughs> but yes, absolutely. And actually, quite a lot of people do believe that, although they don't express it so explicitly. Read Yuval Noah Harari's book, um, The Follow-Up to Sapiens, what's it called? Sorry, I've gone off piece now and I can't remember the name of the book. Anyway, the follow-up to Sapiens is a great book. It's about this subject. The belief that technology will one day save us. It has a name, that belief. It's an unpopular name. It's called idolatry. Anytime we put our faith in something created rather than the creator, it becomes an idol. Anything good in creation has the potential to become an idol. And as John Calvin said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. That belief that technology will save us, to give it another name, is idolatry. It's something that's taking something that can save us other than God and our relationship with who God is. 
And haven't we learnt, looking back at the unintended consequences of technology, that it might take us two steps forward, but it always inevitably takes us one step back as well. Um, Billy Graham and Pope Francis have both given talks to TED, the Technology, Education and Design Conference, on the subject of technology. So I'm following in reasonable footsteps with these sermons. Um, Billy Graham chose to speak about this. He spoke about King David and, the invent- and the, his appropriation of iron as a technology was part of Billy Graham's talk. And David found that there were many problems that technology could not solve. The Bible says the problem is within us, within our hearts and within our souls. Our problem is that we are separated from our creator, which we call God, and need to have our souls restored, something that only God can do. To which he got a rapturous standing ovation from the TED community. The heart of Silicon Valley technology nerds giving Billy Graham a standing ovation for that statement. Pope Francis, a few years later, said this in his talk, how wonderful it would be if the growth of scientific and technological innovation would come along with more equality and social inclusion. How wonderful would it be while we discovered faraway planets to rediscover the needs of our brothers and sisters orbiting around us. Without even realising it, we are now putting products at their core instead of people. It reminded me of a quote I read a few years ago. People were created to be loved. Things were created to be used. The reason the world is in chaos is because things are being loved and people are being used. If you remember back to the beginning of this series, this was the quote that inspired me to think, okay, it's time we preached about this. It was about September last year I read this and thought, we need to tackle the environmental crisis that we're in. And it was this quote. I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science would address these problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed and apathy. To deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. You could quite easily replace that with technology and it wouldn't change. I thought that 30 years of technology could address these problems. I was wrong. They're issues of the heart. They're issues of what it means to be human that then impact how we use this technology well. But the fundamental problem is about who we are as people, who we're made to be and how we live well. Problems like apathy and selfishness. They're things that that the Bible and that faith speaks into relationships one with another, our relationship with God, they will be at the core of solving this problem. Not new New technological advances will be helpful. Wind farms, green energy, they're going to be part of the solution, but they will not be the whole solution because the solution lies within, and it's within the human heart that we need a transformation and an awakening. So three things that I want to flag up to you as ways you might want to do that to reconnect. Uh, the first one is to reconnect with the idea of the common good. If you head across the political idea of the common good, what's good for the majority of people, not just what's the advantage for me, but what's best for society in the decisions that I make. I reckon it has quite a parallel with the Old Testament idea of shalom, peace. 
which Plantega describes as this, universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a state of rich affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, all under the ark of God's love. Shalom is the way things are supposed to be. This vision of this kingdom of God, this peaceable world, this world full of shalom, where we think about the needs and priorities of others and participate in a, in, in a shared decision-making process, a, a, the antidote to the individualism that we see. One is think about how we reconnect with the common good. Secondly, recreate, reconnect with nature and creation. Um, I will be forever grateful for the four days I spent in Wales, freezing wet, soaking cold, hungry, tired and aching. I'll be forever grateful for four days of rain and misery. If I haven't sold it to you yet, why not join us? But reconnect. If, if that, that sounds too extreme for you, too troubling, um, then actually my spiritual director has just written a new book. A guy called Brian Draper's just written a book called Soulful Nature. It goes through the 12 months of the year, thinking about how you might reconnect with faith and reconnect with God through the seasons and through the months in the nature, in the nature around you. It's no accident that whenever I go to see him for spiritual direction, which I do twice a year, we go outside whatever the weather. And his spiritual direction is spent outside, walking around Winchester, walking around the water meadows, finding the labyrinth up on top of the hill and engaging with God in creation around us. And thirdly, reconnect with God. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, Above all, guard your heart for everything else you do flows from it. I'd actually argue that the first two, although they sounded secular, are ways to do this. As you're reconnecting with the common good, reconnecting with other people around you and how we enable human flourishing and how we reconnect with God who, is, who gave us this beautiful world are ways that we can reconnect with God himself. And as we come towards the end of this series... Uh, some challenges for you. Last week, um, Ben Niblett challenged us to see if we could give up plastic for the 40 days of Lent. I know a few people that are trying to experiment with a bit of that, and they're thinking, oh, crumbs, how on earth do I do that? Give it a go. Um, we, have a, we are very fortunate to have Andy's friend Dave coming in a couple of weeks. Um, he's willing to do a Q&A. That's what he's coming for. Um, Andy and I can come up with questions. We could come up with a whole list of them, but they'd be far better if they were your questions. Actually, if there are things that you've, that you've disagreed with, vehemently disagreed with, that you've heard from the front over the last few, few weeks, put them in a question. Let's talk about them. As I said, this is the beginning of the conversation, not the end. If you've got issues, questions, challenges, send them to Andy or I an email and we'll, uh, we'll ask Dave to answer them. I've picked up some um, booklets um, it looks like the Church of England are following our lead and, uh, and focusing on creation care for Lent. And they've produced some booklets, um, Live Lent, 40 Ideas of How You Can Engage with the Climate Crisis Through Lent. Um, I ordered these for the kids. So if you've got children, this is the children's book. I've ordered the adult ones, which you believe they're out of stock. I got an email on Thursday when they should have been delivered to say they're out. I'm hoping they'll be here by next Sunday because Lent begins Ash Wednesday after that. 
Um, so, but if you've got kids, you can take one now. Um, do take them. There's 30 or so here. I'm hoping the adult ones will be here for next week. And finally, um, also Ben mentioned the Eco Church, um, an award, a Russia run, where we evaluate how well we're doing, how well we are adapting and changing and, and our, our carbon footprint as a church. What I would love to do is put a small group together of maybe four or five of us that will undertake the Eco Church survey and think about some of the changes we can make as a church to reduce our carbon footprint and, and earn their, beginning with their bronze award. And maybe we'll buy that recycled pew plaque that you can get. Um, but I'd be really interested in four or five people who feel passionate about this, who are willing to give up a couple of evenings and take some surveys and take a lead on it to work with me to search that out and to see how we're doing. If that interests you, come and grab me after the service because I'd love to involve you. But in the meantime, let's look after this world that God has given us and let's think about... I realise I haven't got a conclusion, sorry. I should have had a, a sermon should have a conclusion, shouldn't it? I need to come up with a conclusion. Let's pause. Lord God, we thank you for the world we live in. Uh, for the many gifts and innovations and technical innovations that make our lives easier and more enjoyable and more pleasurable and fairer. But Lord, we also acknowledge that some of those advances have brought shadow sides, have brought downsides, have had costs and have had implications. And Lord, as we now seek to deal with those, give us wisdom. But also, Lord, reach within into the human heart. Change us as people. Make us willing to consider the changes that are required, not just us here as a community, but us as your people, your church across the world, all of your creation. And Lord, God, guide us and lead us. And I pray for this church's voice. I thank you for the Church of England who has that big platform and that big voice, the way they're speaking into this at the moment. Care for your creation, care for your world. Thank you for this community and the small way we're doing it. Lord, heal us, heal your people, heal your world. Give us wisdom and help us as we navigate a world of smartphones and internet and challenges and children and give us wisdom. Give us insight. Help us to live well as you intend. In Jesus' name. Amen.